mentioned in his uh, prayer earlier, uh, everybody probably already knows this, but Pastor Nick and Miss Kelly had uh, baby Lucy Kate, and everything looks good. I was able to go up and see him on Friday, and uh, she looked great. She just woke up from a nap and never had a baby or anything. She was, she was doing really, really well. So that's, uh, that's good. I'm going to be filling in today for Pastor Nick as we do the sermon. I actually got a funny little side note. The middle basinger girl this morning, I was in here getting some notes ready. Uh, she was sitting on the stairs, and uh, she looked at me, and she said, Are you preaching this morning? And I said, Well, I'm going to be up there, and I'm going to give it a shot. She said, I wonder how that's going to go. <laughs> I said, Probably not very good, but Pastor Nick will be back next week, so don't leave the church or anything, right? So y'all just uh, bear with us this morning. Today, we're going to be talking about uh, a couple of principles that I have been somewhat intrigued by as of late. And I became intrigued primarily because I was having trouble kind of making a distinction between the two concepts, even though the Bible definitely distinguishes them as separate items. And these items are God's holiness and God's righteousness. Has anybody ever had trouble figuring out what these are and how they're different or how they relate or anything? Have you ever thought about that? Well, I've been struggling with it a little bit, but... uh these concepts are definitely linked and are almost always scripturally complementary, but there is a difference, at least in theory, and we're going to kind of talk about that a little bit today. So over the course of the last year, Pastor Nick carried us on this year-long adventure through the entire book of Exodus. So we kind of started off with the Israelite people growing in number before being made slaves in Egypt, who was the superpower of that day. And even in servitude, we see them continue to grow in number to the point where the Egyptians become exceedingly fearful, the Bible says, and in desperation initiate this practice of throwing every newborn male into the Nile River. We see the birth of Moses. We see his salvation through Pharaoh's daughter, his slaying of the Egyptian that was beating the Hebrews, and his subsequent fleeing of the Pharaoh's wrath for that act. We see the burning bush and God's statement that he has heard the cry of the people and seen their suffering. We see his proclamation that he had come down to save them and would bring them into the land flowing with milk and honey. We see the revelation of God's power through Moses and the plagues. We see foreshadowing in the death of the firstborn son and the initiation of the Passover. We see Egypt's release of the Israelites and God's might at the Red Sea. We see God's cleansing of the waters of Marah and Elim and the provision of the manna and quail. We see God's specific instructions on not storing the manna so that the Israelites would have to rely on his provision. We see Israel's grumblings and the water coming from the rock. We see God in the burning cloud, the covenant that was given at Mount Sinai, the Ten Commandments, the complete Mosaic law, and the rebellion of the people with the golden calf. We see Moses' intercession when God's wrath wanted to burn bright and destroy the people. We see God relenting of the planned destruction and the punishment and the restoring of the people. We see the erection of the tabernacle and God leading the people in the wilderness with the cloud over the tabernacle. God's glory and really his majesty and his might and power and all these things are clearly on display, but there are other aspects of God that we can see as well. And we're going to focus on two specific characteristics of God that were on display through the Exodus and really every other letter of Scripture. And those are, as I mentioned, God's holiness and righteousness. 
Now, there's one other component that I didn't want to leave out because without this particular component, um, his holiness and righteousness really wouldn't have any weight behind them, so to speak. And that is his authority, or rather his absolute authority over all things. So what does it mean to have absolute authority? Well, really, it's, it's kind of common sense, but just bear with me for a moment. If you're the most powerful being in existence and you created everything that exists, you can pretty much do whatever you want whenever you want, right? So God could make us dance around with strings connected to us like a puppet master, or God could make us stand on our heads in three feet of sewage for all eternity. It all depends what he wants, and we could do nothing to stop him. And the kicker is, because he is the source of all that is, not only can he do what he wants, but he also has the authority to do what he wants. Now, what's the difference in ability and authority? Well, let me give you a little illustration here. I can get in my car and I can drive 100 miles per hour down Highway 80, right? I have the ability to do that. But if a cop shoots me on his radar, he's going to stop me and give me a big fat ticket, right? Now, conversely, if Officer Joe gets in his car and drives 100 miles an hour down Highway 80, maybe going to a crime scene or something of that nature, and the same cop shoots him on his radar, that cop can't do anything about it. Why? Because not only does Officer Joe have the ability, he also has the authority, right? The only difference between Officer Joe's authority is that it was granted to him by his peers, while God's authority is inherently due to who he is. His will is not dependent on anyone else's. He is autonomous, in other words. He is a self-determining being, and worth note, he is the only self-determining being in existence. All right, and because of that, God can do whatever he wants. Thankfully for us, it doesn't appear that he wants to do either of the two things I mentioned, especially uh, I'm personally grateful for the one about us not standing on our heads in sewage for eternity because that would be pretty nasty. But the question comes up, what does God want or expect from his interactions with us, his creation, and where does God utilize this authority that we've mentioned? Well, fortunately for us as Christians, we believe God has revealed this to us through what we claim as his spoken word, which is the Bible. And today we're going to briefly unpack two aspects of God's character that are at the heart of the gospel message. And these are referred to, as I mentioned, as his holiness and righteousness. So does anybody, just a side note, does anybody remember what the term gospel means? Good news, that's exactly right, it means good news. What is this good news it's referring to? Essentially, the good news is that Jesus saves sinners. But then the question kind of arises, why must Jesus save sinners, and from what is he saving them? Well, that's what we're going to discuss this morning. As we consider God's holiness and righteousness, we're going to look at, at least at a basic level, why sin exists, why God must address anything that falls short of his moral standard, i.e. sin, and why he has the authority to do so. Today, we're going to be operating under the presupposition that God is and that he has spoken clearly to us through the Bible. So let's take a look at the Bible and see what it actually says about this particular topic of God's holiness, his righteousness, why he must address sin, and why he has the authority to do so. So we're going to start off with the question, what is sin? At first glance, this this kind of seems like somewhat of an elementary question, doesn't it? What is sin? 
But actually, it's a little bit more nuanced and, and not quite as obvious as it initially appears, or, or at least it's deeper than it initially appears, because embedded within the concept of sin are some underlying declarations. Now, I don't want to get too far off in the weeds of philosophy here, but it may be helpful to us to take, take a look at a, a little bit of what I'm referring to. So the formal definition of sin is an immoral act considered to be a transgression against divine law. I'll say that again. Sin is an immoral act considered to be a transgression against divine law. So when we say something is a sin, what would be some of these underlying declarations or assumptions? Well, to say something is an immoral act assumes that morality is a real thing and that we as humans are capable of moral action. So what is morality? Morality is basically principles concerning the distinction between right and wrong or good and bad behavior. But not only good and bad, but rather some actions are objectively good and some actions are objectively evil. There is some debate on pretty much uh, you know, all of this, but all religious philosophers and a very large percentage of secular philosophers agree that true morality requires an objective moral standard for which to base evil off of. So what do I mean by objective? Objective means that something is what it is regardless of external influence, like someone's opinion, for example. Someone's opinion would be subjective, meaning that the standard is subject to change. An object is an object of standard is not subject to change based on external influence. It is what it is, right? So what would our objective moral standard be? What is our standard that we compare right and wrong to that is not subject to change? God, that's exactly right. So to kind of tie that together, a requirement for morality is then therefore God. See how that works? Well, sin, by definition, is an immoral act, which we just established requires God, and is also a transgression against a divine law. Well, one of the underlying declarations or presuppositions about that, you see a divine law requires a divine law giver, right? And therefore, the term sin double requires God. It requires him for morality, and it requires him for transgression against a divine law. Why is this important? Because if there is no God, then there is no objected standard for morality and therefore no intrinsically good or evil action. Nor is there a divine law to transgress against, meaning there is no such thing as sin. There would really only be some type of secular cultural relativism. And when our right or wrong is relative to culture's preference, then that's a door that we can see leads to chaos, right? So to play that out, if there truly is no such thing as sin, which requires this objective moral standard, what was ultimately wrong with Hitler's attempt to exterminate an entire race of people? If there's no objective moral standard, what was wrong with that? What's wrong with killing babies in the womb if there is no objective moral standard? What is in intrinsically wrong with those things? You could say you don't like them. I wouldn't prefer for these things to happen. But what is intrinsically wrong about them? What's that? There's no authority to compare it to. If there's, no, if, there, if there's no God and no sin, then you don't have any authority or standard to compare it to. So you can't say that it was truly wrong or evil. It was just something that is, right? All right. 
You could, I, I guess at some level you could argue that without God we could still set up these you know, universal societal contracts that dictated right and wrong action. But what if Hitler doesn't agree to the contract? We can set a contract and say, these things are right, these things are wrong, these things are good, these things are evil. You don't require a God to do that, do you? But that requires absolute agreement amongst all people. And what if Hitler says, I don't agree? What if the mom wants to kill the baby in the womb says, I don't agree with your contract? You can't then say it's wrong or evil that she does it. You can just say she went against our societal contract. After all, that philosophy would be subjective. So no, uh, for there to truly be intrinsically good or evil things, there has to be an unchangeable target that is itself good. So it's my assertion this morning that sin exists because there is a standard of right that governs existence. And just a quick side note, it's important to note that this standard doesn't exist because God woke up one day and said, I think that I determined these actions are right and these actions are wrong. Actually, if you're thinking about it, in light of the fact that God is unchangeable, that actually may have been good enough for us humans to base our morals off of. If God woke up and said, this is going to be right and this is going to be wrong, that would that'd probably be good enough for us to base our uh, object of morality off of. But that's not what happened. It's even more concrete than that. Good and right is not an opinion of what God thinks good and right is, but rather it's an outpouring of his very nature. God himself is good and right, and therefore we can determine what good and right is based on an evaluation of his character as revealed to us through the scriptures and his actions, both seen in scripture and through our personal interaction with his creation. Then, when we fall short of this standard of right that governs existence, it is known as sin, right? All right, so the standard of right that exists is the standard of the character of God, the unchanging character of God, I will add. So here's a question, just a, just a little thought game here. We inherently know that it's wrong to kill. Is that a fair statement? Did somebody have to establish to you that it's wrong to kill or, or was that something that you pretty much just knew? Something we know. It's, it, it's, it's embedded within our DNA to know that it's wrong. Why is that the case? Nature sure doesn't seem to mind killing, right? Take a lion, for example, on the plains of Africa. If it takes over another pride, kills the old leader, what's the first thing it does? Kills all the other little babies, doesn't it? Kills the cubs of, the, of its predecessor, mates with all the lionesses, creates its own stronger bloodline. We call that survival of the fittest. That may be kind of gruesome, or it may be sad, or it may be kind of tough to watch, but would we ever say that a lion was evil for doing that? No. We don't do that because that's just part of nature. Well, why don't we live like that? We're just parts of nature, right? Why don't we live in that same manner? Well, in general... We're trying to live up to the standard of right that God himself has set forth. And in my mind, this is actually one of the proofs of a personal God's existence. The fact that most civilizations throughout history have and have had a common set of moral standards to adhere to, this suggests to me that there is an objective moral lawgiver that has imprinted himself on the hearts of all men, which is pretty much what the book of Romans says to us, right? And that's why it's been pretty much universally accepted that you can't just kill your neighbor, right? You can't go out and steal your neighbor's donkey. 
that was wrong 10,000 years ago. People knew intrinsically that it was wrong, and people will know that's wrong 10,000 years from now. These are things we don't do. However, we do see that many of these major aspects of morality uh, are somewhat universal throughout societies. But we also see the universal desire for humanity to rebel against this. So many societies adhere to this primary standard of, of morality, but they kind of deviate from this primary to a lesser interpretation when it suits them. Take murder, for example. We've been talking about that a little bit. Murder, for example. Nearly all humans agree that it's evil to murder someone. It's not just wrong. It is an evil act. It's not just something that goes against a societal contract. It is inherently wrong to do such things. However, you see abortion rampant in many cultures, right? So what does that tell us? That tells us that absent the standard of God, this subjectiveness kind of takes root. This relativism kind of takes root, and we start operating inconsistent to our own standards. You see how that kind of works? So absent the standard of God... Uh, the standard would really be whatever society during that point in time said that it was. And as we've kind of seen today, we can see that the winds of societal morality are constantly changing and they're not very consistent, right? So now that we have this idea of what sin is, how does that fit into the larger picture of our discussion? Well, the Bible tells us that God is holy. But what does it mean to be holy and how does that relate to us here? We can look at holiness in two ways. And these two ways both point to the same foundation. The first way to look at it is by its actual definition. The definition of the word holy comes from the root meaning to separate or cut off. So God is separate or cut off from everything that is not God. He is distinct. He is unique. Sin and evil are separate from him. He is distinct from them. So he cannot tolerate sin. He can't be in the presence of sin. He cannot sin himself. So that works. The second way we can state it is that God is completely and totally morally pure. So when you look at holiness, he is cut off, distinct, separate, utterly unique. The second way is that he is totally and completely morally pure. We kind of talked about what morality was earlier, which is a requirement for him. So it's kind of circular there. But being cut off from sin would, in fact, be synonymous with being morally pure, right? You see how that works? So both of these definitions imply that God is incapable of sinning. In other words, if you are the standard of right, then everything you must do or everything that, that you do must be right. That's just a logical consistency. If you are the standard of right, everything you do must be right. And also that he can't be in the presence of sin. He can't tolerate being in the presence of sin. That's important. We don't want to miss that distinction there. So let's just look at a couple of scriptures that talk about the holiness of God. 1 John 1, 5 says, God is light. In him there is no darkness at all. So I thought that was kind of interesting how when you look at that, it establishes the light component of God as being inherent to his nature, being a part of what he is, not a separate tangible item. God is himself light. But darkness or sin or evil is something that is a thing that is separated from him. In him, there is no darkness at all. Isaiah 57, 15 says, For this is what the high and lofty one says, He who lives forever, whose name is holy. So it's giving this personal 
uh, characteristic of God as holiness. See, his name is holy. This is not, God is not just holy. His name, holiness is God. You see what I'm saying? All right. Revelation 15, 4 says, Who will not fear you, O Lord, and bring glory to your name? For you alone are holy. All nations will come and worship before you, for your righteous acts have been revealed. It gives us actually a little hint between the distinction of, of holiness and righteous. We're going to unpack that a little bit more in a second, too. We also see that even the demonic forces recognize the holiness of God. In Mark one twenty four, we read, What do you want with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. So, if God himself is unique and distinct from all that is, yet Jesus is also holy, what does that tell us? Jesus is therefore God. So this is an establishing the principle of Christly deity. You see how that works too? That's pretty neat. This is just a side note. All right, well, holiness is one of the essential attributes of God that is not shared inherently by man. We are created in God's image, and we can share many of his attributes to a lesser extent. You uh, take love, for example. We are capable of loving somebody. We're capable of, of mercy. We're capable at some level of faithfulness. These are all aspects of God's character that we can inherently share with him. But some of God's attributes, such as omnipresence or omniscience or omnipotence, will never be shared by created beings. And similarly, holiness is not something that we will possess as an inherent part of our nature. We only become holy in relationship to Christ. It's also important to note that this is biblical holiness that I'm talking about here. Holiness was a, was a definition originally in its, in its format uh, to distinguish something as separate. That's, that's really what it meant. So it could have been something for good or bad. I mean, like a, a temple prostitute, for example, could have been holy because she was not an ordinary prostitute, right? So she was distinct from other things. That's not the way the Bible uses it. The Bible ties it directly to morality, specifically God's moral character. So that's kind of what we're focusing on here. So this holiness that we don't have but are able to acquire is an imputed holiness. What does it mean to impute something? That means to ascribe uh, to or assign something to someone by virtue of a similar quality in another. Collateral, for example. So Christ's holiness is the collateral that purchased our holiness, right? God, Jesus Christ's uh, uh, holiness was imputed or assigned as collateral to us. See how that kind of works? So only in Christ do we become the righteousness of God, as it says in 2 Corinthians. So what does this mean for us? By nature and by action, we are unholy. We are not distinct. We are common. We are normal. We are not separate, right? And also, we are not morally pure. So by action and by character definition, we are unholy. We often act less than the standard of a holy God, and therefore sin. So what then is God to do about it? Well, we've already established that being holy by definition means being set apart or cut off from sin, or even the presence of it. Just a, a, a quick side note. If God wanted to, if God woke up tomorrow and said, I'm going to wipe away your sin. I'm going to say, don't worry about it. Tomorrow you're going to wake up, and it's going to be as if you never sinned. Could God do that? Could he? No. God cannot do that. 
God can't wake up tomorrow and say, your sin is completely accounted for. Don't worry about it. We're going to treat it like it never happened. That brings into the picture the other component of God and why he cannot do that. So the the second aspect is God's righteousness. So what does it mean that God is righteous and how does that relate to holiness and how or why God must deal with anything that falls short of his standard? You catch that? He must deal with anything that falls short of his holy standard. First thing, let's take a look at a couple of scriptures that express the righteousness of God. Psalm 11.7 says, For the Lord is righteous. He loves righteous deeds. The upright shall behold his face. In reference to Jesus, Romans 3.21 says, But now the righteousness of God has been manifest apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. He's talking about Jesus there. Ephesians 4, 22 through 24, the former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires and be renewed in the spirit of your minds and put on the new self created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. So the actual definition of righteousness is the quality of being morally pure or right. How does that work tangibly? At first glance, you you can probably see how it's hard to make the distinction between holiness and righteousness. After kind of talking about these two, do y'all feel that that's a challenging concept to distinguish between them? They admittedly are very closely related. His righteousness is also closely related, perhaps even synonymously so, to his justice. It says, while the most common Old Testament word for just means straight, and the New Testament words mean equal, In a moral sense, they both mean right. So when we say that God is just, we are saying that he always does what is right, and that is to say what should be done, and that he does it every time without partiality or prejudice. The term for just and righteous are the same in both the Old and New Testament. Sometimes the translators render the word just and other times righteous, so with no apparent differentiation. So whichever word they use, it means essentially the same thing. It has to do with God's actions. They are always right. So God is going to do the right thing at all times. We've established by his holiness that he can't sin or be in the presence of sin. So we'll kind of talk about that here in a second too. So what then is the difference between righteousness and holiness? I'm going to read something I found helpful. This was uh, a pastor that I kind of follow named John Piper. He's a brilliant individual, but he's got a podcast series. And I put together a little transcript, and I'm going to kind of extract some of that. So bear with me. He he talks about the differences and distinctions between holiness and righteousness, and this is what he has to say. He says, if we start at the bottom, that is, where we live, I would say that the kind of behavior that would be called holy and the kind of behavior that would be called righteous are, in fact, the same behavior, but but viewed from different angles. In other words, I don't think it's ever the case that we would do something that would be called righteous that would be unholy, or that we would ever do something that we'd call holy that would be unrighteous. So when it comes to the actual deeds and attributes, all holy behavior will be righteous behavior, and all righteous behavior will be holy behavior. That's the first thing. But that doesn't mean that the words are identical in meaning. So what is the difference? The essential idea behind the concept of holiness is being separated from, distinct from, that which is ordinary or common. So in its initial usage, it could refer to something bad or good, as we talked about. 
All right. That's not what we're talking about here in the Bible, he says. In other words, God is separated from everything that is not God and is in a class entirely by himself, which means God, like the rarest diamond in the universe, absolutely unique, is infinitely valuable. This is still John Piper. His holiness, therefore, must essentially consist of his absolute uniqueness and therefore the infinite value of his beauty and excellence. He's in a class by himself. He's above all things. He's sui generis. He's distinct from everything that is not God, and therefore he is of infinite and absolute worth. Righteousness doesn't have the basic idea of being separate and distinct from what is common. Righteousness has the basic idea of conforming to a standard. And when that standard is conformed to, the behavior, the thinking, the feeling is right. And you can see how the two concepts produce the same behavior because if you ask what is the ultimate standard by which all thinking and feeling and action should be measured, the answer for God and all of us is the absolute worth and beauty of himself, which is his holiness. Or you could say, in his manifest form, the holiness of God. Everything you do should be in accord with the holiness of God. The worth of God manifests through his holiness. All behavior that is consistently done in accord with God's holiness is righteous behavior. It conforms to the highest standard, in other words. Piper says, so, in my, so my conclusion is that God's holiness is his complete and utter uniqueness, distinct from all other beings in his infinite and absolute worth and beauty, and that his holy behavior is behavior that accords with that infinite worth and beauty, which means that it overlaps with his righteousness, which is his unwavering commitment to the highest standard imaginable, namely his holiness. I thought that was just a beautiful picture of the distinctions between the two. The holiness has to do with who God is, Righteousness has to do with the actions that correspond to that holiness, to the nature of who God is. So in short, God's righteousness or justice is the natural expression of his holiness. If he is infinitely pure, then he must be opposed to all sin. And that opposition to sin must be demonstrated in his treatment of his creatures. So that's why God can't just say, forget about the sin we're going to wipe it away like it never happened. Like God's all-powerful, so you would want to think that he could do that. But he can't do that. Well, that would be acting contrary to who he is, to his holy distinctness and uniqueness. Right? So when we read that God is righteous or just, we are being assured that his actions towards us are in perfect agreement with his holy nature. That's scary that God must address sin, but it's also comforting knowing what the standard is and what you're, uh, it's, not, it's not a moving target. God is what he is, right? That is the definition of holiness. He is what it is. It's unchangeable. All right, so now to kind of start tying all of this together, his authority, which is derived from being the omnipotent sovereign creator of all that is, allows him to manifest his righteousness in line with his holy nature as he sees fit on his creation. So how will his righteousness be manifest? When we look at the Old Testament book of Exodus, we see God giving these explicit commands. We've, we've seen this over the last you know, 365 days of our study of Exodus. We see God's reaction when the commands are followed, and we also see these reactions when there's disobedience. 
And I think it's probably worth noting that the disobedience far overshadows the adherence to the commands, as we saw. And it's also worth noting that in no instance does God ever say, well, you did pretty good back there in this distance, so I'm going to let this little transgression slide, right? You, you never see that. You don't see that. He always accounts for it. Now, he doesn't always bring down wrath and destruction, so how he interacts with it may change. But it's not just something that is wiped away or washed away like it never happened or canceled out by the good action that we've done previously. And why can't he do that? Because of his holiness. He must remain separated from the sin, else he is no longer holy. And his righteousness dictates that he take right action against these transgressions. Actually, the Bible is pretty clear that even a single transgression is enough to bring on the, the requirement of right action by God. Well, let's talk a little bit about what that right action is too. And that's actually where Jesus Christ enters into the picture here. Jesus is the linchpin on which all of this rides. He is how God takes the right action against evil sinners while maintaining his holiness yet without destroying us. That works. The right action would be to destroy those that have fallen below his holy standard, right? His holy standard of his own character and nature. But he doesn't do that. But he still maintains his righteousness. So how is he able to do that? That's Jesus. The right action is the destruction of those beneath his holy standard of sinless perfection. But through Jesus' perfect sinless life, his death and taking on the sin of all those that will come to salvation through belief in him, and his overcoming of the grave, the penalty of our sin is paid, and the death that we deserve is defeated. And because of who he is, Jesus was the only one with the authority to accomplish all this. So you can see this beautiful picture of how this all ties together. God's holiness is part of his nature. His righteousness dictates that his actions adhere to his holiness. Destruction was the right action that was required for us. Yet Jesus comes in as the perfect sinless one. And he steps in and he takes our burden and our sin and imputes his righteousness and holiness onto us. So that when God looks at us, all he sees is the perfect blood of the Lamb of God here. Just an absolutely beautiful picture. All right. This morning, uh, I'd kind of like to end with a beautiful picture of God's holiness. And in this story, this holiness is being acknowledged through the creation uh, worshiping him. So I'm going to read this passage from Revelation and then I'll come down to the front and we can sing our closing hymn here. But this is from Revelation 4, starting in verse 1. We're going to read the first 11 verses here. So I want you to kind of, it doesn't matter how you do it, I want you to picture kind of what we're talking about here. I want you to see this in your mind and get the, the image of the majesty of what's taking place here. Open your book to, to, to Romans 4 if you need to, or just close your eyes and, and picture this as I talk. And I, I'll try to give some snippets as we go as well. He says, After this I looked... And there before me was a door standing open in heaven. And the voice I had first heard speaking to me like a trumpet said, Come up here and I will show you what must take place after this. At once I was in the Spirit. And, therefore, and there before me was a throne in heaven and someone sitting on it. So you've got a picture of this throne in heaven with a being on this throne. 
And the one who sat there had the appearance of jasper. Jasper's typically this reddish gemstone. It says, and ruby. So picture this, this being sitting on this majestic throne in heaven. And he's got the image of this red, ruby, jasper type material. It says, a rainbow that shone like an emerald encircled the throne. So he's sitting there in this beautiful, majestic rainbow is encircling the throne. Surrounding the throne were 24 other thrones. And seated on them were 24 elders. So you got the picture of, of this being in your head with the rainbow and these elders sitting on their thrones, lesser thrones, surrounding the majestic throne of God. They were dressed in white, which symbolizes their purity, and had crowns of gold on their heads. These, these gold crowns means they're honored individuals. From the, th- from the throne, which tells you that God himself, the being on this throne, is the source of what, what you're about to hear, came flashes and lightning, rumblings and peals of thunder. So you, you got this picture this being on the throne, and he looks like Jasper and Ruby, and there's lesser beings sitting around him that are honored. And from the throne itself, you hear a boom, the thunder, and the crashing, and the lightning. You see the rainbow. You can picture how majestic this is, right? In front of the throne, seven lamps were blazing. These are the seven spirits of God. Also in front of the throne, there was what looked like a sea of glass, clear as crystal. So you've got this floor made of crystal that all this is sitting on. In the center around the throne were four living creatures, and they were covered with eyes in front and in back. The first living creature was like a lion. The second was like an ox. The third had a face like a man, and the fourth was like a flying eagle. Each of the four living creatures had six wings and was covered with eyes all around, even under its wings. Day and night, all of these beings never stopped saying, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. Whenever the living creatures give glory, honor, and thanks to him who sit on the throne and who lives forever and ever, the 24 elders fall down before him who sits on the throne, and they worship him who lives forever and ever. And they lay their crowns before the throne and say, You are worthy, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor, and power, for you created all things. Isn't that just beautiful? That is really, really special. All right, that's pretty much the end of it. So I'm going to come down front, and the praise team can start making their way up. But if you find yourself this morning kind of in the recognition that you've maybe fallen short of this holy standard, but have never you know, maybe taken steps to atone for it, the cross of Calvary is available to you this morning, guys. God's righteousness demands that he take action against those who have transgressed against his holy standard. So the only real question is, will that action be taken directly against you, or will it have been atoned for by the blood of Christ at Golgotha? So the praise team is going to lead us in song, and I'll come down front. If anybody has anything they need to come up front for, feel free. We're going to go to the Lord in song, though, at the moment.